Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. is in our midst. In our gospel lesson this morning, uh, Christ tells the parable of the wedding banquet. In Matthew chapter 22, he had just finished telling another parable, the parable of the tenants to the Pharisees. This is where the king sent his servants and they killed them. And um, Matthew is making clear here in this section, uh, very clear that Jesus is warning the Pharisees that, quote, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So that's the context of both of these parables. But we would be mistaken as Christians to assume that this parable only applies to the Jews who rejected Christ. The church is about 50 years old, give or take, when Matthew writes his gospel, and he's writing it to Christians. Now, while Jesus may have been speaking directly to the Pharisees in the original context, Matthew is writing his gospel for us. Now, we are repeatedly told in the New Testament, and especially by Paul, that everything that the Jews had to deal with, both their failures, their sins, but also the promises they received from God, are not just applicable to us as Christians, not just that we can apply them somehow, but they in fact reach their very fulfillment in the new covenant in our life. In other words, God's warnings and promises, which were critical for the Jews, are even more critical for us. This parable, besides um, communicating to us a very important message, is also happens to be an excellent parable to learn how to read parables, which is important. Very important, obviously, because many people struggle to understand how to read the scriptures in general and parables in particular, especially in our day and age when sort of a a poetic mode of understanding and of reading has been lost on our analytical and technical age and culture and mind. And people can read this parable and really get confused about what God is like. We all know that a faulty reading of this parable and other passages has turned God in many people's minds into a harsh and merciless God, which has rejected many, millions, to reject their Christian faith, in fact, in part because they don't know how to read a parable. I'm sure there's more to it than that, but that plays a part. So as we look at this parable, I'd like for us to keep two things in mind. First, that the message, which consists in a promise... And a warning is for us Christians, not just for the Jews. And secondly, that God's character, as displayed in this parable, is not merciless, which would be to completely miss the point, but rather his character is presented as uncompromising. Not merciless, but uncompromising, which is to say that God is just. That's what that means. That he is just, 
and righteous in his goodness towards his guests. You know, it's not just a, it's not just a, his justice is his goodness. So Jesus goes on to introduce this parable as a parable of the kingdom of heaven. That's what this is about, the kingdom of heaven. The event, of course, is a wedding banquet for the king's son. The other characters in the parable are the servants of the king, and he sends them out to pass out invitations. The first group on the invitation list, uh, they just don't come, right? They don't even provide any excuse at all. They just blow the king off. Not even a response. Just ignore it. The second group is also indifferent to the generous invitation, but they go ahead and give excuses, saying, oh, I've got work to do on my farm. I have business to attend to. The third group inexplicably respond to this generous, kind invitation of the king with some murderous rage and kill the servants of the king who've come to invite them. The only sense I can make of that is that this third group must be demonized, which actually probably makes a lot of sense. The king becomes furious and sends soldiers to put them to death and burn their city, just like he did with the demonized in the Old Covenant when they came into the land of promise. The king says that, well, the wedding's ready. We have no guests. What are we going to do? So he gathers some more servants, and he sends them out, tells them to go out into all the nooks and crannies, and to invite anyone and everyone to the wedding feast. So they go out, and they invite everybody, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the wedding hall is filled with a rather motley crew, just like we are. The king comes in to visit his guests and see who's there, and he spots a man who's uh, underdressed, and he walks up and he says, friend, why, are you wear- why aren't you wearing the proper uh, wedding clothes? The man's speechless, doesn't say a word. So the king calls his servants over, has them tie him up, hand and foot, and they carry him out, toss him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's the parable. Now we know, it's pretty obvious, that the king is God the Father, the son is Jesus Christ, the wedding is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the nuptials, which sweet little Barbara, the holiest person in the room today, just got invited to and made a part of. It is the betrothal of Christ and his church. It is this holy mass, this feast that we partake of this very day, and this is the kingdom of God. The first three sets of guests in the immediate context are the Jews, the servants sent from the king are the prophets and the apostles, and the second set of guests, which are invited later on, are those who've responded to the gospel and come into the church. Now, there are clearly both sheep and goats in that group who appear to be in the church, and as Christ tells us in another parable, there are wheat and tares in the field growing up together, which will not be separated until the end of the age. So that's just something we have to uh, live with. That's something we need to recognize. He said this is how it's going to be, because I'm wise and I'm God, and that's what I decided is best. So we have to be okay with that. There's going to be wolves and sheep together, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, in the midst of the kingdom of God and the church. They'll get it all sorted out at the end. So understanding these things about the parable, the first thing 
that we must do as Christians, reading this from Matthew, is to take very seriously that we too are capable of responding to God's invitation to the nuptial supper in the same way as the Jews. I know at first that seems counterproductive because you say, well, we're here. Well, that's beside the point. We can still be here and still respond the same way. That's the point that Matthew wants us to take away from this. We can blow the king off and just ignore him completely. You know, stop up our ears, be deaf. We can make excuses and find other things that are more important to do. I sent you that little thing about putting God in the closet this week. Don't do that. Put God in the closet. Say, why don't you hang out here and I'll come get you when I'm ready. Or we can even respond to God with anger. Oh, I would never do that. Lots of people actually do that, strangely enough. We can respond to God with anger, wrath. As I said, in this context, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. But Matthew is writing to us, and it applies to us. And we are fully capable of making these same mistakes. That's sort of the moral side of this message in the parable. That's the moral side. How we live, what we do, how we respond, how we flesh it all out. But there's also a really strong metaphysical message in this parable, which is communicated by the absence of the wedding garment on the the one guest, and also then the consequence of him being thrown into outer darkness because he's not wearing the wedding garment. The metaphysical message of this parable is not that the king is ruthless or merciless or unkind, but that in his goodness, he is uncompromising. That he can be or do nothing other than he is. First of all, he is in his goodness and mercy. He has invited everybody to the feast. I mean, if that's not goodness and mercy and kindness, I don't know what is. He invited everybody, especially the unworthy. Secondly, and this is not mentioned explicitly in the, in the uh, parable, but those who would have read the parable in Christ's day and the early Christians would have known full well that um, the proper wedding garments were actually provided by the host. You didn't have to have your own. You didn't bring your own wedding garment. The host provided the wedding garment. So God not only invites unworthy guests to the nuptial supper of the Lamb, He makes them worthy by providing the wedding garment, which is precisely what happened with Barbara this morning. As a gratuitous act of his goodness, his kindness, and his love. Then thirdly, something we might miss, is that he goes to the man when the man is undressed, and he asks him for an explanation. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but maybe this was an opportunity for the man to repent. Immediately think of God going to Adam as he's hiding in the bushes. And trembling. This is a great act of humility on God's part when you think about it. I mean, God is not supposed to be coming to us. (laughs) We are supposed to be going to him. But God condescends. He humbles himself. He comes to us, which is a great act of humility when God comes to us. We ignore him, and he comes chasing after us. He goes to the man and asks him a question, presumably to give the man an opportunity. And the man is speechless, utters not a word. Now when he calls the man friend, by the way, if that confuses you, 
The word that is used there for friend is used in two other places in the Gospels. And it means the same thing in all three passages. This, this word for friend actually is someone who is an imposter. Someone who is posing as a friend. So this parable is really about the uncompromising nature of God, which is just, good, and holy. And if we are going to enjoy the wedding feast with his son, we must be clothed in goodness and holiness, simply because darkness has no fellowship with light. The light simply destroys the darkness. This is not a moralism. <laughs> this is just a metaphysical reality. Light destroys darkness. Would we have God become darkness so that we might feel a little better about him <laughs> in this parable? Would that make him kinder, gentler, more merciful if he became a little bit dark so this poor old sap didn't get thrown into outer darkness? If he were to become part of the evil, is this the kind of God we imagine who would be more loving? Or do we cry out with the holy ones for justice, for God to arise and destroy evil in the world and in our own hearts, to liberate us from the tyranny of Satan and death, and to set all things in order, to set all things rightly? That is what justice is. It is the perennial problem of man to think that he can live in the grave. That he can mingle a little darkness with the light and make do and all will be well. We are constantly fooling ourselves and believing this lie. How do I know that? I mean, I say that with absolute certainty. That this is a chronic condition that every one of us in this room wrestles with every single day. It's not two or three. It's you and me. <laughs> this is our perennial problem. I know that because it is addressed in the scriptures as a dominant theme on practically every page from Genesis to Revelation. We think, even though we know better, we act like, and that's what matters, doesn't matter what you think, it matters what you do, anyway. We think and act like both bitter and sweet water can issue forth from the same stream, and that we can get away with it in the end. But St. Paul deals handedly with this lie, telling us that we should not be deceived because that is a deception. God will not be made a fool. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. That verse is from his letter to the Galatians, and it carries the exact same message as our epistle today from Ephesians, in which St. Paul matches up the moral message of the parable with the metaphysical message of the parable and makes it clear that you cannot have one without the other. He says in our epistle that we must lay aside the old man, which, was which is controlled by deceitful desires, appetites, and we must be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Mind there is noose, not just your brain. It's your noose. We must be renewed in the spirit of our mind, which is to put on the new man created in the righteousness and holiness of God. That's the wedding garment that we must wear 
And while Barbara has been clothed with it today as a gratuitous act of God's mercy through her parents and godparents and the church, she must live in that garment of righteousness. She must embrace it for herself. The new man is Christ himself, which is the garment that the false friend refused. And putting it on, as I said, does not simply mean being baptized. It is both metaphysical, it is both objective and subjective. We must engage it, we must live in it, and live by it. We must live in the truth. Now when we fail, and we fall, which we will and we do, there's always repentance and confession. Repentance and confession is living in the truth when we fall. <laughs> you know, the scriptures say that King David kept the law of God perfectly. What? I mean, he committed adultery and then killed a man. He's a murderer and an adulterer. How can he have kept the law perfectly? Because the law provides for repentance and confession. And when you repent and confess of your sin, then you have kept the law perfectly, regardless of what you did before. That's the mercy and love of God. So yes, we may fall. We may fall short. But God has given us repentance and confession. And that's how we live it out, of being restored when we fall. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.